Well, brethren, as we said the other day, having enjoyed a good lunch and being this time of the day that is siesta time for many, let's ask God for special grace, not only for spiritual illumination, but for mental and physical quickening that we might have optimum profit from our time together. Let's pray and ask God's help. Holy Father, we once more take upon ourselves the high and the holy privilege of drawing near to the throne of grace. We thank you that the throne that once was to us a throne of terror, terror a, tr- a throne of awesome, threatening reality, as we stood under your wrath and under your just condemnation, we thank you that that very throne is now to us a throne of grace, and that we have at your right hand a great high priest who by his once-for-all sacrifice has met all the demands of that law that we broke and that elicited your righteous and holy wrath, we thank you that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the Righteous One, and that he is propitiation for us. And therefore, trusting only in the virtue of that work which he accomplished for us, we draw near and we are bold to pray that having spared not your Son, you would be pleased in this hour with him freely to give us all things needful for our maximum benefit. Help then, speaker and listener alike, that we may know the blessing and help of your Holy Spirit, we ask through the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, as we continue to address this very vital question of what constitutes a biblical and orderly call to the pastoral office. Uh, We have addressed the first of those requirements, an enlightened and sanctified desire for the work of the pastoral office, and we are continuing to address the second major category, and that is a proven fitness for the work of the pastoral office. And under that heading of a proven fitness, we have covered two areas, or in the process, we covered one uh, thoroughly and are now working through the second major uh, gifts that are essential for the pastoral office. We address the matter of having a disposition and capability and acquisition of a sanctified mind and how this relates to the function of that office. And now we are seeking to discern from the scriptures the second category of gifts, and that is those gifts that will fit us for this work. We looked in the last hour at the gifts which come to expression through the various faculties connected with the facility of sanctified utterance. Now we come to the third category or component of gifts, and I've described them this way, those gifts which come to expression in a proven ability to oversee, guide, and govern the people of God with sanctified leadership. 
So there is the sanctified mind. There is sanctified utterance. And now we come to the requisite of proven sanctified leadership skills. And in opening up this third category of spiritual gifts, I will do so under two major headings. Number one, following the pattern I have with the others, the biblical basis for asserting the necessity of such gifts of sanctified leadership. And then secondly, the fundamental components of those gifts essential to sanctified leadership. First then, the biblical basis for asserting that any man who aspires to the office of pastoral ministry must exhibit some measure of this gift of sanctified leadership. And in seeking to demonstrate the biblical basis for that assertion, we will look first of all at the explicit testimony of the Word of God, and then we shall consider the implicit testimony of the Scriptures. And under that first subheading, the explicit testimony of the Word of God, I have two lines of thought. First of all, the unequivocal requirements of 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. So we come back again to one of our watershed passages, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, among the many things that the one who seeks and desires the good work of overseership must possess, we come now to this field of concern. He must be one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. But if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now the basic issue of these verses is not that a man must be a married man with children or He cannot enter the pastoral office, but rather, the basic issue is that a man must not enter the pastoral office unless he has in a sphere of lesser spiritual administrative responsibility manifested a measure of competence and gift to govern in that position. And since ordinarily among the churches, the proving ground for that gift would be a man's relationship to his wife and to his children, Paul fleshes out the generic requirement in this specific way. The Bible often does this. It doesn't state a principle in the abstract all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord does this. He does not say, you, my people, must manifest a spirit of non-retaliation in the face of opposition. He says, no, he that smacks you on the one cheek, turn the other cheek also. He that would compel you to go one mile, go two. He is embodying the principle in the specific and the concrete. But we must come to grips with the underlying principle. And what the apostle is saying in arguing from the lesser to the greater is this that if a man does not know how to rule well his own house, and he uses proistime, if he does not know how to govern his own house, that smaller sphere in which a man is to exercise responsible, authoritative, wise, loving, assertive leadership, if he is incompetent there, how shall he epimoletomai? 
How shall he take care of the larger family with its greater spectrum of need, with its greater pressures and demands for grace, for wisdom, for boldness, for authority, and all the other things that go into the wise government of the house of God? And so here is an unequivocal requirement for those aspiring to overseership that they be proven rulers in a sphere that is akin to the life and ministry of the church. It is the concept of taking care of the church of God that is analogous to the family. Now, while the Word of God is so clear on this point, one can only marvel that this standard is constantly either ignored or willfully violated. When I was in the itinerant ministry for some close to five years, back in the late 50s and early 60s, church after church that I ministered in, in various parts of the country, Never once was I invited to a liberal church. I never had the problem of shall I cooperate with liberals in evangelistic meetings. For some reason, they never courted me. But church after church, it was evident that the pastor's home was in a shambles. One wouldn't have the clue of how tenderly and lovingly And sensitively, and yet with gracious authority, Christ governs his church by watching the preacher in his relationship to his wife. One would not have had a clue of how the church is trustingly and cheerfully submissive to Christ in watching how the wife related to her husband. One would never have a clue of what a well-ordered church should look like by looking at the lack of order in the home. And this vexed my soul tremendously as I began to take seriously, for the first time in my Christian life, the biblical doctrine of ecclesiology, and began to feed my soul upon the Timothy and Titus passages, and began to cry to God, saying, Lord, if you ever put me in a pastoral ministry, please, Lord, help me to take your word seriously. Help me by your grace not to move forward in the area of recognizing church officers who are blatantly and pervasively out of step with the biblical standard. There must be proven gifts of sanctified leadership. It is non-negotiable. And if a man is not married or married and does not have children, it is incumbent upon those responsible to examine a man's fitness to see what relationship God has providentially put in place in this man's life where he has legitimate authority, And how he exercises that authority, does he manifest those gifts of sanctified rule and government? There must be some provenness with respect to this qualification for the eldership. But then in addition to this uh, first line of thought, there is the unambiguous assertion that there are special gifts of rule and government given to members of the body of Christ. And we find this in two passages in particular, 
In Romans chapter 12, after the mandate of the apostle for every man soberly to assess his giftedness and that within the body it will be evident that though we are all members of the one body, we have differing functions according to our differing gifts, verse 6 in following, then Paul lists, not exhaustively, some of those gifts. You have in verse 7, or sorry, verse 6, prophecy, prophesy according to the proportion of our faith, a word gift, or ministry, service, let us give ourselves to our service, he that teaches, a word gift, to his teaching, he that exhorts, another word gift, to his exhortation, he that gives, a serving gift, let him do it with liberality, he that rules with diligence, indicating that some men will have a discernible gift to rule. Proistomenos, he will have a gift to exercise rule and leadership and government. However, this much is clear from this passage. Paul is assuming that some will have word gifts who may not have gifts of rule. And one of the problems is that in many churches, if a man has evident word gifts, the assumption is that qualifies him for the office, though he has no patent, manifested provenness of a gift to rule. In the man who would exercise his word gift in the context of the office of an elder, there must be a combination of word gift and governing gift. And the reverse sometimes is true. If a man has some evident gift of government, it's assumed that surely he'll have a modicum of a word gift and he's given an office that demands both. For though all elders do not labor in the word and in doctrine, all elders cannot truly shepherd if they have no aptitude to teach, if they can't sit down with one of the sheep and open the word of God to comfort, to instruct, to reprove. And if there's an incipient heretical tendency to open up that line of skewed thinking and bring the word of God to bear upon it. And then you have the 1 Corinthians 12 passage that dealing with the various gifts. And in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle lists out various gifts and he speaks of gifts, plural, of government, the plural indicating proofs of ability to hold a leading position in the church. Now, the use of that word and then its cousin word, that word is used only in the passage in Corinthians, but in Acts 27 and 11 and Revelation 18, 17, the cousin word of the same root is used to refer to the pilot or the steersman of a ship. So bound up in that concept of gifts of government is, though, is that thought of the gift of giving direction to the ship as a steersman does, knowing where the people of God ought to go and how best to get there and seeking to keep them on course in their journey. And here I lean upon my doctor of all doctors in these matters, Dr. John Owen, page 514 in volume chapter 4, at the bottom of page 5, I'm sorry, bottom of page 515, 
From these things it may appear what is the nature in general of that skill in the rule of the church which we assert to be a particular, a peculiar gift of the Holy Ghost. If it were only an ability or skill in the canon or civil law or rules of men, if only an acquaintance with the nature and course of some courts proceeding litigiously by citation, uh, then we might just treat the matter with a measure of lightness. But Owen goes on to say, I should willingly acknowledge no particular gift of the Spirit of God is required, but the nature of it being as we have declared, it is impossible it should be exercised aright without a special assistance of the Holy Ghost. Is any man of himself sufficient for these things? Will a man undertake of himself to know the mind of Christ in all the occasions of the church and to administer the power of Christ in them and about them? Wherefore the apostle in many places teaches that wisdom, skill, and understanding to administer the authority of Christ in the church unto its edification with faithfulness and diligence are an especial gift of the Holy Ghost. And does it surprise us that he cites Romans 12, 6 and 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. It is the Holy Ghost which makes the elders of the church its bishops and overseers by calling them to their office, Acts 20, 28, and what he calls any man unto that he furnishes him with abilities for the discharge of. Where there is no gift in the area of rule, there is no gift of Christ to the church of a shepherd. And so you have the explicit testimony of the word of God along these two lines. But now, in seeking to show the biblical basis for the assertion of this necessity for gifts of rule and government, we come now to the implicit testimony of the Word of God. And under this heading, I want to trace out two lines of thought with you. The titles of the pastoral office and the task. Two T's, titles and task. The titles for the pastoral office, the nouns, and then the tasks, the verbs. What are the nouns? Episkopos, skopeo, to look, epi, upon, over. He's a looker over. A pastor is an episkopos, an overseer, a looker over. He is a presbyteros, an older man. An elder, the assumption being that with age ought to come the wisdom of experience. Job 32, 7. Remember, Elihu says, I kept my mouth shut. You old dudes are talking. And I figured wisdom's going to come out of your gray heads. But I've listened long enough and there's nothing but nonsense coming out of your head. So I'm going to go contrary to the normal order of things and I'm going to open my youthful yap. And you guys listen to me. <laughs> That's called a, what, a loose dynamic equivalence in 20th century slang of the text, all right? But that's the essence. He recognized that. And this is why in the Jewish system of the synagogue, the leaders were elders, 
tracing this all the way back to the counsel of Jethro, to Moses, and the appointment of the 70 assistants who could give wise guidance in matters of casuistry within the covenant community. And then the other noun is poimain. He gives pastor, teachers. He gives poimain, shepherds or pastors. Now I ask you, what are these nouns as titles for the office if those nouns are given to a man who has no ability to oversee, to stand back? and to perceptively and wisely and accurately and discerningly discover what is going on in the life of an individual sheep or in the lives of the corporate people of God who has, as it were, this tunnel vision and can't back off and and see the broad picture, where the church has been, where it is, where it ought to move and go under the blessing of God in the days to come, who has no ability to back off and see trends emerging among the people of God. No, the very title, episkopos, an overseer, assumes some divinely given gift of ability to govern and to rule. And what is the name? Elder, if one does not have the wisdom of an older man in order to give wise counsel in order to see what needs to be done. You remember it is said of the men of Issachar that they had wisdom to know what Israel ought to do in its particular circumstance. And certainly what is a shepherd who has no eyes to see as he looks upon the sheep, a sick sheep from a healthy sheep, a sheep that looks like it's got the mange and it's got some kind of infectious thing in its, in its system. One who has no ability to see a wolf prowling around the perimeter of the sheep pen. Or one who, having seen the wolf, has no moral courage of leadership to go out and to strike it. Or like David, when the carnivorous beast came near his sheep, David said, it's either dead shepherd or dead beast, be it lion, be it bear. It matters not. I'm a shepherd. These are my sheep. My life's expendable. Not the sheep, for the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hireling flees when the wolf comes. So I say, brethren, these titles certainly demand that we think of the office in terms of proven gifts of leadership. But then likewise, the tasks associated with the office. And here we look at the verbs. You have the verb poimino, to act the part and fulfill the functions of a shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God, Acts 20 and verse 28. And then again, Peter's words. And what is a shepherd? He's not someone who simply sits there and composes nice little tunes about the beautiful pastoral uh, landscape where he happens to be sitting there with a crook in his hand while the sheep graze. No, to fulfill the functions of a shepherd is a manifold task. Yes, it means to feed them, lead them to good pastures. He must have gifts of utterance, but it's far more than that. He is to give shepherding, protection, guidance, and direction. And then the verb used in 1 Thessalonians 5.12 is proistemi, to lead, to be at the head of, to direct, to manage. 
Know them that are over you in the Lord. Those who are managing you, leading you, standing at the head of you. And then you have hegeomai, to lead or to rule. It's used of, in Matthew 2.6 about he shall be governor of my people. That's the verb used in Hebrews 13.7. Those who have the rule over you. And in Hebrews 17 and verse 24. Hegeomai, governors, leaders, rulers. And then you have episcopeo, to oversee, to care for. There's the verbal form in 1 Peter 5, 2. And then we have the epimoleomai in 1 Timothy 3, 5. Take care of the verb used by the good Samaritan when he takes the man to the inn. He took care of him and then paid the man the money that he might need with further care. You now take care of him. He didn't give him a whole booklet full of do this, do this, do this. He assumed that the innkeeper would be discerning to see what does this man need? Does he need more bandages? Does he need more rest? Does he need to go to the orthopod and get a bone set? Does he need to go to the surgeon and have some sutures? He assumed that he would perceive the needs and take the proper course to meet the needs. That's what being a pastor is. It's epimoleomai. It's taking care of the people of God. So, brethren, what are these activities but the open door to confusion, to schism, to discord and to disorderliness if the men called upon to perform them have no divinely imparted gifts for sanctified leadership? So, in summary, I say, I rest my case for asserting that in this matter of the pastoral office, and if we are to have rest of conscience that Christ has furnished us to fulfill that office to the good of his people, then there must be evident some manifest God-given gifts of sanctified leadership, ability to oversee, to guide, to govern, to shepherd, to lead, to take care of the people of God. Well, now we come to consider the second major division, having laid out the biblical case for the necessity of gifts of sanctified leadership. Now, the fundamental components of the gifts of sanctified leadership. What are the components that are essential to sanctified leadership? And I want to lay before you, as time permits, five such components. Number one, and more than ordinary degree of spiritual discernment. According to 1 John 2.27, because of the gift of the Spirit, the crowning benefit of new covenant privilege secured by the death of Christ and his ascension at the right hand of the Father, all of the people in the new covenant community are spiritual. John makes this abundantly clear, as do the other New Testament writers, so that every true believer has some measure of spiritual discernment. However, in those who must lead, oversee, shepherd, govern, and care for the people of God, there must be more than an ordinary degree of spiritual discernment. 
And what do I mean when I say discernment? Well, the word means the ability to distinguish things that differ. You see, the parent who can't tell the difference between the cry of pain from the cry of petulance in a child cannot be a good parent. To discipline for a cry of of pain is cruelty. That's parental abuse. To fail to discipline for a cry of petulance is wickedness. It's to cooperate with the devil in the damnation of your child. And what is a parent who can't distinguish between the two? Or, what was very real to me, the action of clumsiness and that of temper. I had a growth spurt between ages of 12 and 15, came to my full mature height, and my whole central nervous system hadn't caught up with my newly acquired appendages. And I was constantly bumping into, knocking over. My dear father, I can still hear him say, Albert, you've got a gift. Almost every night at the supper table, over went the glass of milk, over went the glass of water, walking to take the dishes in the kitchen. I bumped the edge of the refrigerator. Albert, you got a gift. Anyone talking about a gift of preaching? He's talking about a gift of clumsiness. But he knew the difference. He knew the difference between that which was innocent expressions of teenage clumsiness. But if I'd gotten upset with something and kicked the refrigerator, aha, that was met with appropriate discipline. So, the first component that goes into this matter of sanctified gifts or gifts of sanctified government is this matter of more than an ordinary measure of spiritual discernment. Secondly, more than an ordinary measure of spiritual wisdom. Wisdom is that commodity which enables a man to use his stock of knowledge to make righteous judgments, and then to secure proper goals by the best means. That's wisdom. Discern the situation accurately. Understand the right and best goal in dealing with that, and then the best means in pursuit of that goal. It's that commodity which Solomon asked of his God, 1 Kings 3, 7 to 12. And God gave it to him, not in that instance, by the general cumulative stock of wisdom, but as a divine deposit. You've asked wisdom, I will give it to you. And God was pleased to grant that gift of wisdom. And where is it to come from? Well, it will come as we with the servant of Jehovah can say, as he does in Isaiah 50 and verse 4, he wakens my ear morning by morning. He has given me the ear of one that is taught. And brethren, here's where we need to be men who are soaking our souls in our Bibles, particularly wisdom literature. Elders ought to be at home in the book of Proverbs. Because so often it is those sententious little statements that bring into sharp focus an issue that passes before us in our work of shepherding the people of God. You see, the parent who goes after a mosquito on the forehead of his child with a baseball bat is not the wisest parent in all the world. Or the parent who sees a pit 
bull after his child and tries to knock him away with a fly swatter is not a wise parent. And I've seen pastors who did things akin to that. There was a situation that needed to be addressed. It was like a mosquito on the forehead. It wasn't in the best interest of the person upon whom the mosquito landed. But they took a baseball bat, and I I tell you, they got the mosquito all right, but they crushed the skull in the process. And then I've seen many others. The pit bull is coming after one of the spiritual children. They see it's a pit bull. It has the potential to greatly harm one of their spiritual children, and they go after it with a fly swatter. So afraid they'll be called heavy-handed shepherds. I mean, there's a place to be heavy-handed. Paul said, hey, you Corinthians, I'm losing my patience with you. You want me to come with rod, or you want me to come in gentleness? What you do determines how I come. And he was ready to come with a rod. He was ready to go after pit bulls with a .30-06 rifle or .44 Magnum and play Dirty Harry spiritually if necessary. Put it right between the eyeballs and pull the trigger. But you see, when a man doesn't have spiritual wisdom. He may have a measure of discernment and sees the problem, but you pound your head when you think of the way he attempts to solve it. And surely, if Acts 6.3 required of those first men, whether that is the incipient seedbed of the office of deacon, I know the thing is debated forwards and backwards and inside out. Here was the requirement for men to wisely be God's instruments, to lay to rest a a, a matter that was causing divisiveness and rumblings of fissures in the unity of that early church, men full of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of their fullness of the Spirit would be their wisdom, and for that wisdom they needed to be full of the Spirit. Thirdly, There must be a more than ordinary degree of spiritual courage. More than an ordinary degree of spiritual courage. Now you and I may have a temperament that is more akin to a Jeremiah or to a Timothy. And if so, God will give us the necessary courage as he did to Jeremiah and to Timothy. When the Lord calls Jeremiah, he says, oh, I'm but a child. I can't do what you've called me to do. God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, I'm going to make your forehead like iron, like bronze. I'm going to give you a forehead that you'll be able to butt heads with anybody with whom you need to butt heads in the way of obedience to my commission. And what did Paul say to Timothy? He said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me or of the gospel. Suffer hardship with me for... God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but of power and of love and of discipline. Timothy, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has equipped you for your ministerial task. Now trust Him to give you the measure of spiritual courage you need in order to fulfill that task. If this element is lacking, there will be an aversion to confrontation to dealing with the unpleasant. You'll cave in when people begin to frown and you will, in essence, to your spiritual children, become what Eli was to his physical children. He restrained them not. 
He loved them with a saccharine, unprincipled, mousy kind of love. And again, I have seen this again and again in the course of my years in the ministry. So if we're to govern wisely and justly and honorably for the good of the flock of God, not only must there be this more than ordinary degree of spiritual wisdom and spiritual, but also of spiritual courage. And then, fourthly, a more than ordinary degree of the spiritual disposition consistent with the unique nature of rule in Christ's church. A more than ordinary degree of the spiritual disposition consistent with the unique nature of rule in Christ's church. And here I want us to turn together and park for a few minutes in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 25. Jesus called them, that is, his disciples, unto him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, kata kurieo, kata kurieo. They lord it over them. They stand over them and press them down beneath their authority. And their great ones exercise authority over them. He says that's the way the world operates in its pecking system of structures of authority. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they have their niche, they have their place, they have their authority, and they're going to keep those within the sphere of that authority under them by virtue of that authority. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Not so shall it be among you, but whosoever would become great among you shall be your minister, your servant, your table waiter, And whosoever would be first among you shall be your doulos, your bondservant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus said, the way the world operates in its corporate structures or in its military structures, in its political structures, cuts no mustard in my church. Now, is the Lord saying that there is to be no legitimate authority structure? Of course not. We'd have to rip out one passage after another. Obey them that have the rule over you. Somebody's got the rule and somebody's being ruled. And submit to them. Somebody submits and somebody is the one submitted to. The Lord is not neutralizing the reality of a divinely instituted order of authority in which some rule and some are ruled. In which some lead and some follow. But he's going after the disposition within which we exercise that God-given sphere of authority and rule. And he says we are to do so in a way that reflects the manner of the one who has all authority in heaven and upon earth. 
the one who could say, the Father has delivered all things into my hands. You call me Master and Lord, and so I am. He was conscious of his place of authority. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? I am your Lord. But what was the disposition? He tells us, I am among you as he that serves. The Son of Man did not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. It was the disposition of self-sacrifice, willingness to put himself in the place of the servant. He is the Christ of the towel and of the basin. When no one else in that upper room is willing to grab that basin and that towel and do what ordinarily some in-house servant would have done, the Lord Jesus shames them all lays aside his outer garment, girds himself with a towel, pours water in the basin, and he's at the feet of each of those disciples, washing their feet. He's exercising his lordship in this beautiful illustration of what the whole work of his redemptive activity is all about. He's taking the role of the servant. Philippians chapter 2. In the form of a servant, becoming obedient unto death, yea, even the death of the cross. And that's to be the spirit with which we carry out our responsibilities and functions of legitimate rule and government and leadership in the church of Christ. So that there never should be a legitimate accusation of, quote, heavy-handed shepherding. Now, I am not saying you will not hear that accusation. In a wimpish society with men who cave in, in an egalitarian society in which there is no fabric of delight in the structures of government anywhere, but everyone feels he has as much right to do, say, and throw his weight around as anyone else, that accusation may come, but it ought never to stick in the theater of your conscience and of your sheep who really know you. That you exercise responsible rule and government in the church of Christ from the posture of a servant's heart. And you will be given manifold opportunity to demonstrate that that is the disposition of your heart. It will be in ways that you're not conscious that your people are watching you. When they see you walking across the foyer picking up the gum wrapper that everyone else walks by and doesn't pick up, but that you know could be an eyesore to a visitor that would turn their minds off from what your church is all about. You're the one who picks up the gum wrapper. And when that mother's coming through, seven months pregnant, and she's got a diaper bag in the left hand and a two-year-old holding her skirt on the right, and uh, who else knows what, and her dull husband, he just off fellowshipping somewhere, And you're the one who instinctively goes over and you helps her get off with her coat and down with her diaper bag to the nursery. You're showing the disposition. And you're not trying to impress anybody. That's who you are. They're servant for Christ's sake. 
And when you take the initiative to go to them in their times of distress and felt need with a disposition of preparedness to open up your personality to feel their anguish and to weep with those who weep as well as when your heart's broken to bring yourself to be able to rejoice with them in their rejoicing. And sometimes it's much harder to rejoice with those who rejoice when you've got a broken heart than it is to weep with those who weep when you've got a happy heart. But it's the disposition, you see. And when that disposition by the Spirit of God begins to percolate through the stuff of our inner being, there are manifold and untold ways that we can demonstrate that that's who we are by the grace and power of God. There must be that disposition of Christ-like servanthood that characterizes our relationship to our people. The Apostle Paul could say to the Corinthians, he said, I'm prepared to spend and to be spent out. He uses the compound word. I'm prepared to spend and go beyond that and be utterly spent out, though the more I love, the less I be loved. And that's why you and I are Christians. There's not a one of us here who responded in repentance and faith to the first overtures of Christ's gracious, open hands and his word of invitation. We spurned him. But though we did not love him, he continued to love and track us down. So there must be more than an ordinary degree of this spiritual disposition consistent with the unique nature of rule in Christ's church. And there again I commend to you the good Dr. Owen, 175, I'm sorry, page 515 at the top, where he alludes to this very incident And he says, the Savior forbade all rule unto his disciples after the manner of the Gentiles, who then possessed all sovereign power in the world, and told them it should not be so with them, that some should be great and exercise dominion over others, but that they should serve one another in love, the greatest condescension unto service being required of them who are otherwise most eminent, He did not intend to take from them or divest them of that spiritual power and authority in the government of the church which he intended to commit unto them. His design, therefore, was to declare what that authority was not and how it should not be exercised. A lordly or despotical power was not to be nor was it to be exercised by penal laws, courts, and coercive jurisdiction, which was the way of the administration of all power among the Gentiles. And then he goes on, and I've written in my margin, classic, a few sentences down, but such a rule is signified unto them, the authority whereof from whence it proceeds was spiritual, its object the minds and souls of men only, and the way of whose administration was to consist in a humble, holy, spiritual application of the word of God or rules of the gospel unto them. Spiritual mindedness is essential in one's concept of rule. Humility and servanthood should be the posture 
of our rule. And then finally, the fifth component of this element of the divine gift of proven ability for sanctified leadership is a more than ordinary degree of spiritual force of character. And again, are they the best words? I don't know. They're the best I could come up with. A more than ordinary degree of spiritual force of character. And what goes into that force of character? Number one, unmistakably masculine demeanor. Now, I do not mean that we've all got to go pump iron and try to look like Arnold. By a masculine demeanor, I mean that the way we carry ourselves, the way we speak, the way we act and react is distinctively masculine. I'm trying to capture what Paul said in 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. Acquit yourselves like men. Be strong. Let everything you do be done in love. Paul was not a misogynist. But he understood that there are distinctive masculine characteristics that are not the distinctively feminine characteristics. He doesn't say acquit yourselves like a noble person generically, but acquit yourselves like men. Be distinctively masculine in the expression of your Christian manhood. And when I speak of force of character, it involves this unmistakably masculine demeanor, It involves, secondly, soundness of judgment. Having a a masculine mind, not one that flits here and there like a child, but as a grown-up responsible man. Resoluteness of purpose. You're not a waffler. Today's yes is tomorrow's no, and yesterday's no is today's yes. There is a decisiveness. Once your way is clear and you're committed to it, then you can say in the old proverbial words, hell or high water, this is my commitment. Or to say with Luther, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. And then added to these would be what I call seriousness of demeanor. Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, when he was a child, thought as a child, spoke as a child, acted as a child, when I became a man, I put away Childish things, and surely one of the things of manly demeanor, of this force of character, not that you're somber in some kind of an artificial way. People should know that laughter was not invented either by the devil or monkeys. It's God's gift to us. And they should see you as a whole man and know you're a happy man and that you enjoy life. But in all of that, even in what we might call your lightest, most jocular moments, there is a bearing, a seriousness of demeanor that people know they can entrust guidance and direction and oversight to men who are men and not boys or foolish and irresponsible teenagers. Well, I close by quoting from Dabney, who addresses this matter of force of character and In his essay on what is a call to the ministry, page 31, the scriptures which define the necessary qualifications of the minister may be digested in substance into the following particulars. He must have a hearty and healthy piety, a fair reputation for holiness of life, here we are now, a respectable force of character and some Christian experience and aptness to teach. 
And you see how I've worded all of those things in different ways, but they're all there. A respectable force of character. And then he goes on to make some comments with respect to what that force of character would look like over on page 35. The three qualifications next mentioned, a fair reputation for sanctity of life, a respectable moral force of character, and some degree of Christian experience may be grouped together. The man whose Christian character does not command confidence and respect would, as a minister, only dishonor God and his cause. Yet it is every man's duty to reform those inconsistencies by which he has forfeited the respect of mankind, whether he's to preach or not. Having thoroughly reformed them, he may find his way into the pulpit. The minister must have some force of character. The feeble, undecided, shuffling man who can't rule his own family nor impress and govern his inferiors by his moral force had better not preach. This is what I'm trying. This is a rather elusive thing, but I think you men as men know what I'm talking about. And you know when you're in the presence of men who embody, to one degree or another, those qualities. Brethren, would you want to be led in the matters of highest moment, the well-being of your soul, the soul of your wife, the souls of your children, the souls of those around you by men who have no proven gifts to govern and rule? Not I. I trust not you. And I doubt your people. May God grant that we shall be such men. Let's pray. O oh, our Father, the more we delve into your word, the more we are ashamed at how low our, we have in the past set the bar and been content to leave it there. And how your heart must be grieved when your word speaks so clearly. And that speech is regarded so lightly by so many. May there be by your grace and the moving of your Holy Spirit a raising of the bar up to its biblically determined level. And may we see you at work bringing men to that standard. Lord, do it for your praise and for the good of your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.